This is Pete Moore on Halo Talks NYC. I have the pleasure of having Comvest Partners with me today. One of the leading financial firms on the specialty finance side have worked with a lot of private equity groups, a lot of entrepreneurs, and helping them reach their financial and personal objectives. So I want to welcome Colleen Gorda and my new friend Dan Lee to Halo Talks. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks. Excellent. So I know you're working on a deal in in the Halo sector right now. So we want to make sure you don't use the word wellness during this uh, during this discussion. Health, active lifestyle, outdoors. I know you've done a lot of restaurant deals, a lot of multi-unit, and we're going to give people a little bit of a crash course on how debt providers look at your business, what the size is, and the risks and the returns. Uh, but why don't we first start off and just give your personal background so everybody knows how you got to become experts in this field. Of finance. Terrific. It's great to be here. Thank you. So this is Dan Lee. Uh, I'm a partner in our lending business. Uh, I've been a lender for about 20 years. I started as an accountant way back in the day. Spent a couple years as an investment banker uh, and realized I was meant to be a lender. I'm a glass half empty kind of guy. Meant to be a lender. That's the first time we've heard that on here. So lending selected me and I've been at it for 20 years. And um, was part of a team that built a platform called Dimas Capital back in the day, and now we've been building Convest for the last 10 years. And excited to be here. Excellent. Uh, and hi, I'm Colleen Gerda. I'm a SVP over at Convest. I've been there for a little over five years. Before that, I was at a small mezzanine lending fund, and prior to that, I was a healthcare investment banker. Uh, we are fans of fitness over uh, in the New York Convest office, and um, yeah, we're excited to be here. Excellent, excellent. So, uh, you, so Dan, you did mention you know debt versus equity. So, why don't we just explain you know when you get involved in in certain situations and what size companies you know just to start off and you know the criteria side. Sure. Yeah. So, one of the things that makes us unique is that we do both sponsored and non-sponsored lending. So, we lend to businesses owned by private equity sponsors and also businesses owned by owner operators, uh, uh, family offices. Uh, so, typically, we're lending to companies that have at least five million of EBITDA. If it's a, a fitness or a restaurant business, typically we require 10 units. We have done deals with less than that um, if, they, if they show a great deal of stability. And typically we're lending anywhere from 20 to $100 million per transaction. Uh, we lend to a lot of growth businesses. That's something we do really well. Mm-hmm. Uh, we help them grow uh, with additional capital after we've funded the initial loan. Gotcha. And, and when you talk about the $5 million for threshold, you know, some of our clients are below that threshold and, and don't have access to this and are going to SBA groups and doing personal guarantees. And, and uh, David and I just gave a, uh, a presentation and we kind of said, you know, if you're if you're competing without the ability to access the, the right pockets of capital, you're basically, you know, playing checkers for someone playing chess, but you happen to be playing on the same board. So it's kind of not, not a really fair fight anymore, especially in yep. the, in the fitness industry where you've got a lot of private equity backed platforms and you're able to access your capital. So maybe talk a little bit about, you know, you got the $5 million threshold for, for reasons. And why don't we just be transparent about what they are? Um, because earlier stage deals have a lot more risk to them. Maybe they, you know, I'd, I'd like people to hear that. Maybe not just for me. Sure. <laughs> That's certainly part of it. The risk profile is certainly part of it. I think the other element is that we, we are looking as an investor to put a minimum of $20 million to work. And so if you do the math, it really makes sense for the business to have at least $5 million of EBITDA. So it's sort of working backwards into a minimum investment amount. Gotcha. And then once you get invested in a company, um, it's not like a traditional commercial bank where you know they're just saying, okay, make sure you send your 
interest payments on time. I mean, you're really, you know, a partner to the business as if you're, you know, an equity firm, but you're really, you know, kind of leveraging the experience that you've had with other businesses and kind of helping them, you know, stay on course. Yeah. So I think the analogy, you actually made a, a, I think a really useful analogy about the SBIC funds. So Mm -hmm. you can think of the SBIC funds are at an earlier stage of growth than we are. Then we come in as, as a bridge to a bank. And so the SBIC requires personal guarantees and the pricing is higher. It's typically going to be in the low to mid-teens. Uh, once, once you transition to us, there's no more personal guarantees. Mm-hmm. And the pricing is typically in the high single digits. If you make the transition to a bank, you're back into a world of, of personal guarantees potentially. But now you're looking at a low, kind of a mid-single digits, but a much tighter structure. So you're not going to have as much flexibility to grow. Gotcha. And then when you think about, you know, we, we work with a lot of, you know, individual operators that, that have accessed bank debt or, um, you know, put their house up or, or what have you. And there's a pretty aggressive amortization schedule on the debt. How do you think about your fund? What are your investors looking for? What are you really giving to them? And, and why do you allow people not to have to pay down a, a loan? Yeah, no, that's a great point. So banks require uh, significantly more amortization, which curtails growth. So we're the opposite. We're looking to to require minimal amortization. Typically, it can be 1% annually. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then we're also providing delayed draw term loans that will actually increase the size of the loan. So an example of a structure, we may lend a company 30 or $40 million, let, let's say $30 million to start, on a $50 million line, it's mm-hmm. going to fund the additional 20 over two years as they grow from 10 stores to 20 stores. So the leverage profile remains relatively flat because the business is growing, mm-hmm. but we're, in, we're providing the capital to, to fuel that additional growth for the, the owner, whether they be a private equity firm or that owner operator. Mm-hmm. So, so how do you think about when you're sitting around your investment committee and you're making a, a loan and you're basically providing an extended draw and you said you're you're the, the you're the guy in the room that's like you know half full versus I'm the guy who's like oh this thing's gonna be the next whatever size company, you know how do you kind of say like look if we're gonna like commit to this, it, we're we're in this for not just like our principal we're in, we might be in for two two x or three x of what we signed up for so how do you think about that and how does the market kind of push you? to maybe extremes and you say, hey, look, I'm, you know, this is kind of where we're at and this is like what we're comfortable with. Really important point. So I've worked with one of my partners for 20 years uh, and the other for almost 10. And so we are very good at assessing what we, what we like early and where we have conviction. A lot of that has to do with knowing the industry. Mm-hmm. And so our view is you can't win every deal. You're not good. You don't want to win every deal. And so, because yeah, then you might have overpaid for every deal. Right? That's right. That's or exactly. Priced every deal. Right? That's right. And so, <laughs> at the end of the day, what you want to do is figure out where you have conviction and put your best foot forward. Um, we really try to be consistent throughout investing cycles. So, what, what we see is a lot of lenders come into the market and out of the market, and they get really aggressive when, when times are good and they pull way back when times are bad. Right. As a borrower, that's a very difficult position to be in. A bank is a great example. That's just the nature of the banking industry. Mm -hmm. And it's not the banker's fault. It's just the function of the industry that they're in. Puts the owner in a very tough position when he's got personal guarantees and a family and a house. Sure. It's, um, we've, we've seen that play many times. Uh, and so we'll lose, I'll say happily, but, um, it's not always happily, but we're, but we understand that our, our goal is to be consistent 
And if that means losing by being responsible, mm-hmm. then we're going to be responsible and play the long game. And we, we think that's, at the end of the day, better for the people that borrow from us because it makes us more consistent lenders. I so, think one thing yeah. just to add there is that, you know, we work very closely with our companies and our entrepreneurs and our borrowers. And when we structure a deal on the onset, we work to look at the model, to look at the store openings, to look at the potential capital that they want to deploy to think through it and think, hey, you may not need $100 million, but you may need 20 tomorrow. And then sort of work with the entrepreneur to understand their capital needs. So it's something that makes sense for both them and us. Gotcha. So let's let's define a couple of the terms that, that we've used here for, you know, a sponsor or a non-sponsor deal. So, you know, just for our, our listener base, you know, a sponsor deal means outside capital, institutional capital, could be from a private equity firm, could be a family. And a non-sponsor deal would be basically partnering with the original entrepreneur. Um, so how do you think about, you know, if, if you're if you're a lender, how do you think about like the new equity or the dollars coming in below you? You know how much of that is 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 creates more comfort, or is it that that the equity is kind of validated the deal and is going in below you, or the fact that um, you've worked with these people before potentially, you know how they kind of go through. You know, there's always a hiccup in a business. The question is like how people react to the hiccup, and you know, do they get over their skis or do they get aggressive? So, how do you think through your desire to do a, a sponsor deal? which has its benefits, but also maybe more aggressive, you know, in, in getting better terms or partnering with an entrepreneur, but maybe that takes longer for you to get comfortable with that entrepreneur and that relationship. That's an open-ended question. I yeah. think it's a question. I'm not sure. Yeah, it's a question. It's a question. <laughs> it's a question. Sorry. Put a question mark at the end and we'll make it a question. Yeah, yeah a question. So, um, yeah, look, it's a really good question. The vast majority of our competitors compete with a private equity sponsor involved. That's that's just where they lend. Mm-hmm. And it's be, because of what you pointed out. They feel more comfortable knowing that someone else has done the diligence and invested real dollars below them. Mm-hmm. Our background is more entrepreneurial. We were, we were started by uh, our owner 25 years ago. And so he's built this business backing management teams that had no sponsor involved. And so while we certainly do our share of sponsored deals, we like non-sponsored deals because they are less competitive. Mm-hmm. And unlike some of our competitors that only do sponsored deals, we get comfortable working with that management team. We know the questions to ask, and we stick to industries that we understand. Mm-hmm. So that makes a huge difference. So we can get smart very quickly. So when when that business owner is sitting down with a, a bank, with the, the bank officer, He's not going to necessarily speak their language because he hasn't been in that industry. He's a generalist. When we sit down with with someone that's in the oil and gas field, mm-hmm. we would be meaningless because we don't do oil and gas. But when we sit down with someone that owns multi-unit, is an operator of a multi-unit chain, he understands very quickly that that not only is it me, but I have operating partners that I can bring to the table that will make him realize we understand what we're doing mm-hmm. and we're not going to waste his time. And that so that makes a big difference competitively for us, and it creates an option for that business owner that that wouldn't have existed if he didn't call us. Gotcha. And then from a, from a relationship standpoint, how how are you kind of building relationships, you know, that turn into deals, and how long does that take with with entrepreneurs that that you've met? Yeah, t- takes a long time. <laughs> you know, I think the, when you look at the length of time to sign up a sponsored deal versus a non-sponsored deal, it's probably sponsored, non-sponsored deal is significantly longer. Mm -hmm. Um, But look, I think you'd be hard pressed to find a lender to say, who says that not 
new cash equity going to, in, into a deal is a good thing. One thing that Dan mentioned is just we do value the management team. And so therefore, as lenders, we don't put as much value maybe into new cash dollars going in, but into the team and a strong team who knows how to operate the business. Mm -hmm. So you've done a lot of deals in the restaurant sector. I've, I've, yes. Over time, I've known Comvest before we, we connected a couple of years ago, I guess now. You know, as, as doing a lot of non-sponsored deals, maybe a little riskier transactions, at least on paper. Um, you know, so as you've looked at the fitness industry and the health club market, you know, what what have you gotten excited about, and and what are some of the similarities that you see, you know, with with your restaurant, your other multi-unit operations that you funded that have gone well? Sure. Yeah. So I'll, so to start, we've really funded a, a mix of. Uh, franchisee, franchisor, and company-owned, and some that are a combination of, of franchisor and company-owned. So we're, we're, we found comfort sort of across different ownership models, and um, I think fitness, we view the same, and, and we're actually working on a deal that's a franchisee right now mm -hmm. uh, of a very successful chain. And so, I, you know, typically what, what we love about restaurant deals and, and fitness deals is, is it's great data. You get at the store level, mm -hmm. you're getting traffic information. You can, you can track the historical trends. And so really, we're just looking for strong operating trends, um, stability. We're not expecting perfection. We don't get perfection, but um, stability where there have been hiccups, um, an ability to work through it and, mm -hmm. um, and show that there's, there's long-term stability. And so it's just a, it's a host of, of metrics that are just super easy and, and compelling in the right situations. And we see a lot. So we get to look at look at a lot and sort of assess them and keep that data and then mm -hmm. just use the data to to assess new opportunities a little to line it up and filter where we think the unit level economics are most compelling. So if we look at Planet Fitness as an example, there's 17 private equity firms, I believe, in the in the Planet Fitness network right now. Um, the amount of debt capital that's being thrown at these these operators to grow is you know at an all time high. Um, you know, uh, laundromats in, in, in general, in back in the day, you know, the, the laundromats never close, <laughs> you know, they're, they're always on the corner and, you know, they're collecting cash and they might not be getting people results on a fitness side, but they're definitely, you know, there to stay. And it's very, you know, minimum wage goes up and nobody freaks out, you know, it's, it's totally fine. Um, you know, as you, as you look at that category, you know, if you, if you roll back the clock or you roll it forward, you know, would you do deals with your fund in like, how much risk would you take from a brand standpoint or how, what have you done in, in the restaurant industry? Have you said, OK, look, we've got a chain of, you know, called Taco Bells as an example. They've done really well on the West Coast. I want to finance, you know, as many more as I can because I believe in that brand. So how do you think about that from a diversification standpoint or basically say, hey, look, I know something. I know what I know I like, and I just want to do it as many times as I can, you know, within reason. Right. I'd say it's the latter, uh, generally. What we're looking for is businesses that we like. We're less concerned about a portfolio construction okay. of trying to, to um, create a certain, a certain mix of types of deals. So we're really just much more focused. That means that we're doing a lot of franchisors or a lot of franchisees. That's fine. You know, we just want to be lending to the, the, the models and the management teams that we believe in. We are the one foundational element of Convest that goes back to our beginning is our owner's belief in good management teams. And that is something that we have found that you, you, you can be in bad spots with a good management team and you'll work through it together. 
Uh, that management team is underwriting management is absolutely critical. And it saved our bacon many, many times. And we have management teams that would tell you that we were a very unique partner because of our flexibility in working through a tough situation with them. Gotcha. And I think I think we want to leverage the knowledge we learn on a deal by deal basis to then do deals, similar deals. Right. So we do a lot of work up front to understand a brand, to understand the customer trends, to understand what the unit economics. So we want to use that data to leverage it, whether it's the same brand in a different ge- geography or a similar concept, um, which we'll try to leverage everything we've learned. Mm-hmm. So uh, people ask me, you know, um, is there a recession coming? You know, what What do you think is going to happen? Da, 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 da. And I said, well, I haven't gotten an email yet from anyone that I respect that says they're starting up a distressed debt fund or a restructuring group. So I think we've got at least, at least a couple of years from my standpoint where things are going to continue to go the way they're going to go. Um, what has – how have you thought differently or have you, how have you not thought differently about there's a company has a certain amount of leverage – Here's what the risk return profile is, and there is no new normal. Hmm. Good question. That's because that is true. So there is <laughs> there is no new normal, or maybe this is entirely a new normal. Uh, so you know, really, the way we look at it, I'll tell you. A couple of years ago, we started expecting that it was just around the corner, mm-hmm. and and underwriting that way, and we lost some deals because of it, and we think that's okay. Yeah, I think there's um, our view is I I've been wrong repeatedly over the course of the last six years. Uh, I've just sort of defaulted to a lame, it's 18 months away, sort of excuse right. over and over again. Right. And uh, I've given up because it's just, uh, it's just, it's just silly. So at this point, we, we just continue to look at things. So we typically, we stay away from areas that are highly cyclical, like building products and um, oil and gas mm-hmm. and uh, auto, automotive to a degree. And but I think, and then, and then we recognize that within fitness and restaurants, there will be areas that are certainly hit by the cycle. Some will benefit, frankly. And so it's really a matter of just being uh, sort of honest with the, with the facts and of how that business is likely to perform through a recession. And having been doing it for 20 years, we've got a track record that says we're, we're pretty good at figuring that out. And where we're wrong, we're able to work through it and, and get to a, to a reasonable conclusion. And when I think, when we think about fad risk, it's sort of, we look at the softer aspects of a deal, you know, um, the network, the accessibility to different demographics, the technology, the results. If you have all those things, we think, you know, the business will be around for longer than if you have something that is a super trendy concept only for a very specific demographic and customer. Mm-hmm. And then just so people understand, you know, as a debt provider, you know, we're, and we're talking this, you know, $5 million of EBITDA and a, and a $20 million, you know, minimum size check that, you know, you're, you're basically in it four times. So as long as a company's, you know, valued more than four times EBITDA, you know, for all these people that have heard us use EBITDA on every other podcast, you know, you, you're kind of not that deep in the cap structure. So can you talk a little bit about, instead of me talking about it, like how you think about, you know, how, like what's, what does a rainy day look like? You kind of touched on it just now, Colleen, but like, what does a rainy day look like for the business? And, you know, as a debt provider, you know, your first goal is to preserve capital and, and then, you know, to, to your upside kind of comes second, but your, you know, your glass half empty or, or half whatever is, is to make sure that at least I'm going to drink my half back, you know, when we're done here. So how, how do you kind of think, how do you kind of calibrate that and not get, um, or go back and say, you know what, look, there's never been like a, a Taco Bell, as an example, that's traded for less than like four and a half times. 
you know, as a franchisee. So, like, what's our real downside here? Do you want to? Yeah, I would say it really comes down to the front end, to structuring on the front end so that you can withstand a hiccup because any business can and will experience a hiccup. Growth businesses are more likely to. That's just reality because your growth, even if you're not growing at a breakneck pace, you're stretching the organization, and that's likely to lead to some sort of operational issues. So on the front end, for us, what that means is going in at a leverage amount that that we're comfortable with. So maybe it's less than four times, mm-hmm. but it grows to four times as the business grows over time and as we fund up. And if we hit a hiccup along the way, um, there's there's a uh, recession or there's something specific with the business that needs to be addressed, then we figure out how to address it together. I mean, it really is about uh, doing, one of the things that we, that we don't do, and for good reason, is there are deals being done now that don't require any financial covenants. So yeah, there's just... There, there are no covenants in the deal. That's a that's really in the sponsor middle market. That's kind of twenty million and EBITDA and above. So it's larger deals, mm-hmm. and we have competitors that are doing that. And well, we, well just explain t- to people what that means. Sure. Yeah. So it just means that you would not have a leverage covenant or a minimum EBITDA covenant. Um, so there is. So if the business underperforms, traditional lending. If the company underperforms, the lender has a chance you get a, a covenant default mm-hmm. and the lender would sit down with management and talk about what happened. What went wrong and, and is it a short-term blip or a larger problem that we need to address together? Um, if you don't have financial covenant defaults, that means that you don't have that seat at the table. And while that sounds great for the borrower um, to have a lender that's sort of in the corner, that lender, if he starts getting concerned about his position, realizing that he doesn't have the ability to sit down can very quickly become recalcitrant. And so you go from a situation that could have been been addressed together um, earlier to one late in the game where they're freaked out and realize that they have a real problem on their hands. So Mm -hmm. for us, we we spend a lot of time with people when we're competing against deals that don't have a financial covenant. We always tell people, we view covenants as communication. Communication is important to us. If you want a lender that, that you don't need to communicate with, that's your choice, but right. that's not us. We want to know that we can have an active mm-hmm. dialogue. That's going to make us a better partner. If things go wrong along the way, we can address it together. Yeah. It seemed to me like no covenant deals, you know, like 10, 12 years ago, um, nobody's happy that they made those deals from a, from a lending standpoint. So I think part of what we were joking around the other day, but like a banker's memory is like, you know, five years in a recession, you know, like a cycle's 10. So like they forgot what happened. So, um, you know, I guess that's part of like staying true to who you are and like, you can, you don't want to win every deal because then the term just kind of got un- unraveled. Yeah, that's right. And listen, <laughs> I'll, I'll be the first to, to admit there are companies that deserve a no covenant deal. There are great mm-hmm. businesses that warrant it. The, the issue is that that gets used on the me too's on a lot of other businesses that aren't so great mm-hmm. that are going to be volatile. And I think that's going to be something that you'll see a lot of uncomfortable lenders and ultimately sponsors realizing I got a real problem on my hands. I got, I got a lender that, that is neutered. They're, they don't have any rights because, but they're really, really being difficult. And they've got the lawyers digging through the documents, looking for anything they can do to be a pain in my rear. Right. And so I think that's, that's an unfortunate reality of these structures. Mm-hmm. So as you look at the fitness industry right now and you see – you know, no shortage of, of big box retailers going out of business, you know, forever 21 and 
so on and so forth. So, you know, as you see that, uh, obviously in the leases, as we always say, like you know, a lease is either an asset or a liability. You know, it's typically not like so-so. It's like I've got a great lease or I got a, I got a bad lease here. Um, and there's some big players that have signed some bad leases and are trying to get out of them and they take up 80% of the time trying to get out of bad leases and it's, it's a nightmare. So as you look at the, at the industry and get behind some of these bigger brands, you know, how much do you, how much have you viewed the growth opportunities? Like this is a great time for them to sign long-term leases and, and generate significant amount of cash flow from potentially what the prototypes, you know, in, in the template looks like, or do you say, look, you know, I'm not banking on, on them getting these great lease deals. I'm going to kind of, you know, I'm going to put my own lens on it and say, okay, that's great that you got like a hundred percent TI dollars, you know, in this deal, but like, I'm not underwriting that deal. So how do you, how do you guys, how do you think about that? Yeah. So it's, I would say we don't do deals where we're purely looking at the opportunistic side of it, but we have done deals that have an opportunistic side. So we're always looking at the underlying business. I'll give you an example. We did, we've financed two restaurant deals, both of which part of their play is to pick up cheap leases of Outback Steakhouse, Chili's, Ruby Tuesdays that Mm -hmm. landlords are, are stuck with. And they have models that happen to be big enough in their destination concepts and so they can they can step into these leases do sale leasebacks and very quickly recoup their cash and have a have a store that's operating uh, comfortably mm-hmm. we only did that deal because we believed in the business model and the unit economics were incredibly stable so so it stands on its own mm-hmm. um, but then we're also providing additional capital to help them capitalize on that so we have a term loan that will fund up if they found 10 locations that they could get a sweetheart deal on mm-hmm. we would fund that and then they would go operate the businesses and they would delever and they would, or do a sale lease back and, and pay us down. So we provide very flexible capital, but we are looking at the end of the day for it's it's not transaction dependent. It's, it's really we're lending to good businesses that may have an opportunistic bent to them. Mm-hmm. And then from a standpoint of how many portfolio companies you have and as you raise new funds, now you've got a you've got an equity fund as well under Convest. Uh, I know some of the, the team members there and. You know, when I send over a, uh, an opportunity, kind of maybe it goes to the to, to another pocket of capital inside of Convest. How do you think about you know companies that could be in competition with each other, geography? You know, we've got we've got a, a fitness. You know, let's say it's a, a high a high volume, low cost, but we don't want to put a boutique concept that we're in the same market. How, how have you addressed that, or has that come up yet? But how do you, how do you think about like portfolio companies kind of not? competing with each other just from an asset management standpoint? Yeah, no, that's a that's an interesting question. It just honestly doesn't come up. Mm-hmm. And it's really a, a function of the fact that they don't do deals in fitness and they don't do much and they don't do anything in restaurants. And so we don't see any sort of issues there. And they're, re- they're really good at what they do, but they're focused on industries that are slightly off what we do. Um, gotcha. And that works, that works well for both sides. It's very clear when a deal comes in, if it's a fit for them or it's a fit for us, it kind of the decision, frankly, makes itself. Gotcha. So uh, for for the entrepreneurs out there that are that are looking to bring on financing, you know what what's the uh, the, the the closing uh, taglines for for why you should partner with Comvest? Yeah, listen, we we get one of the things I love about my job is that I get to meet a lot of really passionate people that have have built businesses that they believe in, that support their families, that support their community, that are doing good things for our economy. Mm-hmm. And that's exciting. I mean, that's just, that, that's the part of my job that I love. That's why I love non-sponsored 
deals because we're dealing directly with that owner operator mm -hmm. and we're different than the bank. We provide a very different. So it's a hell of a lot more fun to compete when you're bringing something different to the table. And so I would say that that's what, what we bring to the table is a track record of helping companies grow and helping them grow at a lower cost of capital than the alternative and, and dilution certainly than the alternative. Mm -hmm. So I would, I would um, welcome uh, any calls, emails, please you know, call Colleen and I, we are, we are here to, to help. We're here to, uh, to help you build. You know, we, we take our role very seriously and we, um, we won't waste your time. I think just to echo Dan's point, you know, we have a, a lot of money to deploy, but we're a, a lean team. So just as much as management teams and operators and owners matter to us, hopefully will matter to you. And you will be working directly with us through the life of, you know, the investment. And we consider ourselves to be good people as well who just want to help companies grow. So That's great. So on those parting words, welcome to the fitness industry. Welcome to the Halo sector. May this be the first of many. For and sure. we Thank will you. Uh, we, Thanks, we will Pete. do a uh, we we will do a part two of this in a couple of years, and we'll say, okay, here's what we've accomplished. Started with X amount of locations. Now we're at X hundreds of locations. I so, like it. Yeah. Um, one, accountable, one of, please. Yeah. One, one, one of the things I do tell people, and they're like, oh, you're a banker to the fitness industry. Like, what are you doing? I'm like, well, there's probably like 400 locations that have been built because we were able to convince someone to partner. Yeah. yeah that's times cool. six thousand members. You know, it's probably like two and a half, three million people that have you know, gotten capital and now have a place to work out. So welcome to joining in that, in that growth of uh, helping people get bigger, stronger and, and better than what they were before. <laughs> I love that way of thinking about it. That's cool. That's All really right. cool. Bring that to committee. Great to see you. <laughs> Thank Done. you. Thank you. Thanks.